Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. mentioned, we're going to be wrapping up our three-week vision series. So, so far we have looked at the uh, concept of worship, which is central to who we are here at the King's Church. Uh, We say it every week that we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus. We talked about what that means to be engaged uh, holistically, all that we are, and worshiping all that God is. And then last week, we examined the deep call to interdependence, not independence, uh, within the family of God that the scriptures point us to. And then this week, Uh, We are actually joining churches all around our country today that are observing that's something called Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And this is a Sunday that's observed annually near the anniversary of the passing of uh, Roe v. Wade in 1973 that gave a constitutional right to abortion. And it's a Sunday where God's people fight to remember the worth, value, dignity, and personhood of every single human life. And ever since 1973, when this was passed, the statistics on the number of abortions that have been performed in our country is a little unsettling, and it really ought to prick our conscience if we value human dignity this morning. Uh, The most recent data we have is that something around 635,000 abortions took place in our country in 2015 alone. This is something that ought to grieve us, it ought to move us to prayer, and it ultimately ought to compel us to action. And the reason why, of course, for God's people is that we believe that all human life, regardless of age, regardless of size, regardless of shape, color, abilities, cognitive faculties, all human life is created by God and bears the very image of God. Now, I know this topic can quickly become a partisan political issue in our context, but for those of us here who are Christians— Those of us here who have been saved by the grace of Jesus, this first and foremost is a theological issue well before it's a political issue. This is a kingdom of God issue as we are called within the church to care for the least of these, regardless of how our world wants to determine people's worth, value, and personhood. And I want to say this very clearly this morning up top, no matter how you might be connected to this issue, and even if you are someone here in this room this morning who has had an abortion There is hope and healing in the gospel. Know that this morning, that there is hope and healing in the gospel, that God's grace goes further than our decisions and our failures and the things that we go through in this life. And also know as a church, as the King's Church, we will always be involved in ways that support the dignity and worth of all people, not just dealing with the preborn, but also a host of other issues. Because as we talk about the sanctity of life, We are called as God's people to uphold human dignity all the way from the womb to the tomb. And so from every stage of life in between, we will fight to uphold that dignity. Now, in honor of this particular Sunday, we've intentionally slotted this sermon and the conclusion of our vision series to line up here. Because we want to focus in on a related aspect to what we are remembering and what we are praying for today. 
And it's something that the New Testament calls pure and undefiled religion. And it simply is this, caring for orphans and for the fatherless and the motherless. We're including this in our vision series because this is actually something that has been in the DNA of the King's Church before we even knew what the church was going to be called. This has been a part of our family here before we knew who God was going to bring into this room. And this is not something that I ever once casted a vision for. This is something that God has done. God has stirred up within this particular context a deep care and concern for the fatherless and the motherless. We have so many families who have been, who are currently involved, who are looking to get involved in orphan care, whether through adoption or through fostering. And I know for those of you who are in that, it's so beautiful and so messy at the same time. Amen. But there's something about the heart of the gospel that is seen there that I want to press into this morning. Because the more I've been around our families who are doing this, and the more I study the scriptures, and the more that I've prepped for this sermon, which I tell you right now has been three months in my head running around trying to figure out how to condense this all down. Might be a little long this morning, bear with me. Uh, I think as we study the truth of adoption in the scriptures, I think it is the deepest truth that lies at the center of the good news of the gospel. The more I'm around it, the more I see it in action, the more I reflect on it, read it, and study it, the more that I find that my heart is caught up in this story. I mean, I've told people this week, I feel like I became a Christian again Monday afternoon studying this text. I don't think I've ever fully grasped what it means that God is our Father. Like, if we really grasp that we are adopted into the family of God with God himself as our Father. J.I. Packer, a great theologian, says this. He says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. And I'm saying maybe I haven't understood Christianity very well at all until I've really jumped into this topic. And I know this morning, regardless of your own story, your own family history, wherever you are and however you've come into this place, for all of us, it's a struggle to feel like God really loves us sometimes, isn't it? Isn't it a struggle because of the hardships in this life, because of the fact that we are just prone to sin as fallen human beings, don't we quickly get suspicious of God's love towards us, right? We settle for this idea that God merely tolerates us, like, yeah, he saved us, but he kind of holds us at arm's length. He sort of overall is kind of giving that, you know, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed look at us. Isn't that kind of how we feel like God sometimes looks, right? I think if we really, really grasp this idea that God is our father, it stands as a definitive and constant reminder that God loves us just as a father loves his children, which means he's not holding us at arm's length, which means he's not disappointed us. It means that he revels in us. We are his beloved sons and daughters. And I know whenever we talk about fatherhood, that that can bring up a host of feelings and questions and issues for any single one of you in this room. But know this, God is a perfect father who exhibits perfect love for his children. So this morning, here's, here's where we're aiming. 
I really want us to key in on the idea that we have been adopted into the family of God. So though we were orphans, we have been adopted by God through Christ, making us fully and completely children of God. And I want to press into three terms that we see in the text that Chelsea read for us as a sort of outline. The concepts of siblings, first and foremost, brothers and sisters, the idea of sons, and then the idea of heirs. Because we truly are brothers and sisters. We truly are sons, and we truly are heirs. And before you question, well, what about daughters, right? You notice I kept it at sons. Give me the benefit of the doubt. There's actually a really incredible way that for those of you who are sisters in Christ this morning, you're actually brought into that label of sons. And it means a whole lot more than might strike us at first. So this morning, let's pray. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Let's, let's pray and ask that we don't have to observe Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Let's pray that it's just so natural to who we are that we don't have to take time out to do this. And let's ask the Lord to move in and through our midst. Pray with me. God, we come this morning um, with heavy hearts as we think about um, things that are happening in our world that are just not the way that they're supposed to be. May you this morning encourage us from the truth of your word. These are your words that have been inspired by you, communicated in the words of Paul. So I pray this morning as we study it, as we learn about it, that you would move it from a concept in our head deep within our souls so that we might know that you are Father and that we are your children, and we might consider the implications of that for our lives. May you help me to speak with clarity and with concision this morning. May we land at the good news of the gospel that Jesus, you have come to make us brothers and sisters and to help us to realize that we are children of God. May that truth just permeate into our hearts and in our souls and our lives through our time this morning. May you please move in that way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Chelsea began the passage, let's read it one more time, verses 12 and 13. He says, so then, brothers, you'll notice a footnote there, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. In so many passages in the New Testament, it begins with this address of so then, brothers, or so then, brothers and sisters. Now, while this Greek term can refer to a literal brother, a human man, uh, it seems so often in the New Testament epistles, it just stands in for the whole believing community. And so Paul, setting this familial tone at the beginning of this section, says, brothers and sisters. Now, if you read your Bible anything like I do, we just sort of glaze over that, right? Like, okay, cool, he's introducing you know, himself to the audience again. We don't really pause and, and think about this, because oftentimes brother or sister in our context is just a friendly word for an acquaintance, Right? We, refer, we use it to refer to somebody that we are friends with, that we might be tight with, or in church, we use it all the time when we don't remember somebody's name, right? So th great sermon. Thanks, brother. Appreciate that. Sister, appreciate your encouragement, right? Um, if I call you brother or sister, I, I still probably remember your name, but give me the benefit of the doubt there, right? Um, we just kind of use it as a filler oftentimes, but that certainly is not what's going on here. Uh, this is not a reference to a good friend or a tight acquaintance or someone that you've maybe forgotten their name of. No, in this context, and specifically in this book of the Bible, Romans, this address 
was nothing short of revolutionary. To call them brothers and sisters was earth-shattering. Because here's what's happening in Rome, where Paul is writing this letter to the epicenter of the capital of the Roman Empire. During the time of the early church, uh, Emperor Claudius, he expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome, including those who had become Christians. Then, when those Jews were allowed to return to the city of Rome, and those Christians who were Jewish returned, they found a very different church community waiting for them. They found a very non-Jewish church that was existing where their community once was. And this, to state it lightly, caused some tension. The church community in Rome seems to be divided. They disagreed about what exactly it meant to follow Jesus. And this is not just an issue in Rome. In fact, the single biggest issue of the New Testament outside of the good news of the gospel of Jesus is the relationship between Jews and non-Jews, what the scriptures calls Gentiles. That relationship between Jew and Gentile is the biggest ethical issue of the New Testament. Because after all, for the Jews who believed in Jesus, from their vantage point, this whole thing was birthed out of Judaism, wasn't it? I mean, Jesus himself was Jewish. Shouldn't these Gentiles become just like them? Right? Shouldn't they follow the dietary restrictions? Shouldn't they observe the Sabbath? Shouldn't they stop eating meat that's sacrificed to idols? Shouldn't they be circumcised and apply the sign of the covenant? I mean, these are not small issues, especially that last one, right? That's a big commitment to make later on in life. But what would happen is that this division within the family of God was just cancerous. And the question that stands over the church and really over the entire New Testament is this. Are we really brothers? Are we really sisters? Are we really family? Are we sure that is what God is doing? Again, think about those Jewish people. They're looking at these outsiders. They eat differently, different customs, different traditions, different languages, different skin colors. And besides, I mean, these people used to frequent some sketchy establishments, right? I mean, they kind of have a checkered past, to say the least. Don't forget that Israel, right, is not birthed as a government, but as a literal brotherhood. It is 12 brothers, 12 sons of Israel that become the people of Israel. These are not small matters. And by the way, I'm guessing that in this room, most, if not all of us, would be Gentiles in the biblical sense of this word. But I'm also guessing that we don't tend to read our Bibles that way. Right? Don't we, when we're reading the Old Testament, we like to think we're the good guy, right? Like we are David, not Goliath. We are in the mighty army of Gideon, not in the Midianites who are attacking God's people. Right? We're in Jerusalem faithfully holding on. We're not the Babylonians who are pillaging and bringing God's people into exile. But you know what the reality is? We were the outsiders. We were the ones far off from the presence of God and the covenants of promise. We were without hope in the world, Paul says in Ephesians 2, because we were without a relationship with God. We, to put it simply, were the bad guys. We were the Philistines. We were the Midianites. We were the Babylonians. We are not part of the people of Israel. But then Jesus comes, and the beauty of the gospel is rather than holding at arm's length, rather than viewing with suspicion, you know what he does over and over and over again? He starts moving toward the outsider. He starts moving toward the weak. He starts moving toward the vulnerable, toward the ones with the questionable past and the checkered decision-making. 
And then we get here to Romans 8, and Paul says, so then, brothers and sisters. See, we can't just skim over that, right? That's literally the gospel right there in three words. That is it right there in Romans 8, verse 12. Jesus comes on the scene, and he immediately challenges something that exists deep within the soul of every human being in our fallen state. The best way I could describe it is that we are a sinful people who are prone to tribalism. You know what tribalism, right? It's this idea of us versus them. To view the outsiders with suspicion, to protect our own, right? To prioritize our people over their people, whatever that means in your own heart and in the context we find ourselves in. And that is precisely what Paul is warning against here. That is precisely what he is warning against. Look what he says. He says, for those in Christ, we live no longer according to the flesh. You know what it means to live according to the flesh? It means to apply worldly standards and worldly judgments and worldly evaluations of personhood, worth, value, and dignity, and family, which at best only goes skin deep. And in all of this, Paul says, if you keep living that way, it will lead to death. It will lead to death. And don't forget what kind of Sunday we're remembering today. It will always lead to death. It leads to us having to observe Sundays like today. It leads to us, in our own judgments, breaking somebody down to something less than an image bearer of God, whether overtly or more dangerously, subtly within our own hearts. And this challenges us, right? This challenges us immediately. Those who are prone to pride in our own flesh and blood, even with your best efforts, you can't earn this title of brother or sister. You cannot earn it. It is only given to you, and as we'll see in a moment, it is only given by adoption. But at the same time, for those of you here who might feel some level of shame about your DNA, or you might not even know your parents, or your biological background is messy or confusing, or you just live in a fallen world where it makes family hard, right? God is bringing you into the truest family that will exist for all eternity. He truly Jesus truly calls you brother and sister. It is not some secondary title that is applied to you. Regardless of your past, your family history, however you find yourself here, anybody can get in on this. And it's a free offer of brother and sister. You are not the sum of your biological background or your biological family, whatever that might look like. If we truly saw ourselves in the church as brothers and sisters, Rather than viewing one another and what's happening in our world through the lens of the flesh, through worldly standards, adoption and foster care and caring for orphans makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because we are not a family in this room based on genetics. We are not a family based on biology. We are not a family based on similar interests. No, it runs way deeper than this. We are a family because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are a family not formed by the blood of biology, but by the blood of the cross. And that runs far deeper than skin deep. There's this beautiful exchange at the end of the Gospel of John that really grabbed me this week as I thought about it. Jesus is resurrected. He's raised from the dead. He has conquered sin, death, and evil. And the first person who sees him is Mary. And he says this to Mary. It's beautiful. He says, don't cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But listen to what he says. But go to my 
brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Jesus, don't forget, is calling these disciples my brothers while they all fled, while they all ran and hid, and while they are right now cowering, terrified of getting arrested and tried in the same way that he does. You know what he does? He says, go tell my brothers. Go tell them. This isn't over. I've been raised. I am now making my father your father. My God is your God. You see, this is what Jesus does. He does the exact same thing to you and I. While you and I are hiding, while you and I are running other directions, while you and I are cowering in fear, Jesus says, go tell my brothers and sisters the good news. How does that strike you this morning? How does that hit you? That is the gospel. That is it, that though we are undeserving, Jesus has purchased our redemption by the blood of the cross. He has brought us into a real family. This is not some sort of family that we just apply. Now, this is a real family united by the blood of Christ. He calls us brothers and sisters. So don't move past that when we're reading our Bibles. That is loaded with meaning. Now, if he calls us brothers and sisters, and if Jesus is our brother, that means that God is also our father. So let's move to that now and talk about the idea of being truly sons. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it means to be spiritual according to the Bible. Right? We sometimes equate this with having all of this deep insight and wisdom. Like, man, that person's just really spiritual. Right? They seem to have it together. Right? Depending on your background, you might associate being spiritual with some of the more miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe it's just somebody that we think is deeply in touch with who they are. They know their emotions. They know their inner self. They know their feelings really well. They're kind of spiritual in that way. Now, these may or may not be true. But what we see here is that Paul strikes right at the heart of what the Bible says it means to be spiritual. Right at the heart of what it means to have the indwelling Holy Spirit within the people of God. You see, the role of the Holy Spirit, what it biblically means to be spiritual, is that it instills a deep sense within us that God is indeed our Father. That's what it means to be spiritual. It's to be struck and to be reminded and to slowly massage that into our souls. This is what the Holy Spirit does, that God is our Father. He weaves this childlike dependence into us as we look to our Father. The Holy Spirit works within us to confirm our identity in this way. See, while I think the idea of brothers and sisters points us to the true nature of family, the idea of God as father gets deep down into our identity. So we have the family piece. Now let's think about the identity piece underneath that. In the Gospel of John, again, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's about to happen at the end of his earthly life, which is going to be traumatic, by the way, for his friends. 
And he says this to them as he is preparing them for his crucifixion and his resurrection. They're wrestling with that crucifixion. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then don't miss this next phrase. You know what Jesus says? I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So how does Jesus come to us? It is through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are not left as orphans because we have been given the spirit of adoption. Jesus and Paul are pointing us to the same reality. And this Holy Spirit causes us to receive this adoption as sons, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Think about adoption for a minute, though. I mean, adoption is a choice, right? Adoption is not an obligation. It's not something that you just kind of end up getting forced into. No, it's an active choice to move towards someone, to welcome someone into your family, whether it's for the long haul in adoption or for a season in foster care, whatever that situation might look like, it is a choice, Right, I'm choosing to do this. Well, think about for a moment, God is our father. Right, God is not obligated to do this. God chooses to have this posture towards us. He doesn't just simply save us and give us the get out of hell free card. No, no, he doesn't just save us and say, all right, now I'll tolerate you and put up with you. No, when he saves us, he sees us as these beloved sons and daughters which means that we get all of the privileges and all of the rights of being part of the family. And this produces within us, Paul says, a cry of Abba, Father. Now, if you've ever heard this word explained before, Abba, I think we tend to sentimentalize this a little bit. Now, you've maybe heard it said that Abba has this idea of daddy or dada, something that a child would learn to babble and say. And this is true. It does have this sense of intimacy. For example, no Jewish person would ever dare address God in this way without a quick caveat of, well, he's my heavenly father, or he's my father who is in heaven, who rules and reigns over all. No Jewish person would address God this way. That is until Jesus comes. And then Jesus just calls God his father, Abba, alone over and over and over again. There is an intimacy piece that is here. But note specifically how Paul says that we say this, Abba. How do we say, Abba, Father? Did you catch what it said? We don't simply babble it in a cute way. It is a cry. You know what that means? It's a scream. Later on in this same chapter, Paul is going to say that the Spirit intercedes with us with a groaning too deep for words. Do you get the picture here? It's not a cute child yelling dada, although that's cute and awesome, right? Now, this is a child who's fallen down. This is when your kids learn to walk, they scrape their knee, they cry out, dad. This is when, in my house, we've got this table that is I, just, just the perfect height for my son to run right into right now, right in his forehead, right? It's when he runs into it and the pain comes and he says, dad. It's when you're scared by a stranger or a situation and you cry out, Abba, arms raised, looking for an embrace, looking for help from your dad. That is exactly what the Spirit does within us. That is exactly what the Spirit is weaving into our hearts. In the face of brokenness, 
when we are frustrated with sin, whether it's our own or others or the culture around us, when we feel keenly the effects that things are not the way they're supposed to be, the Spirit leads us to reach upward, arms outstretched, looking for an embrace, crying out, Abba, Father. That's what the Spirit causes within us. But we have to appreciate that in order for this cry to be ours, in order to be able in full dependence to cry out to our Father in that level of intimacy, we have to look to the Son of God first and foremost. Right? Jesus, the one who promised not to leave us as orphans. Because in order for us who were orphans before God, in order for us who were not naturally born into the family of God, in order for us to receive adoption, Jesus has to become a substitute orphan for us. And if you think about Jesus' story for a moment, this is what happens, right? He first and foremost is adopted into an earthly family. Have you ever thought about that before? It wasn't until last week when I went, oh my gosh, why have I never seen that, right? Jesus is born into a family and welcomed by a man who is not his biological father. He is welcomed by a man who, nonetheless, though he's not his biological father, is his real earthly father, who raises him, who changes diapers, who picks him up when he's crying, who teaches him carpentry, right? Passes on the family lineage there, right? And this is from a man who could have just hit the eject button. The moment Mary tells him he's pregnant, Jesus is adopted into an earthly family. Move the story forward. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. His crucifixion is impending. And remember what he prays? In Mark 14, Jesus tells us, or Mark tells us that Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus, when he is sweating drops of blood, preparing for the cross, is crying out to Abba. And then, of course, most profoundly on the cross, what does Jesus cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Functionally, Jesus is becoming an orphan so that we might be adopted into the family. That's the gospel. That ought to do something to us. Right, that ought to stir up worship within us and action through our hands. Right, this is how you and I become sons and daughters of God. This is how we have God as our Father. Because we know Jesus, after the crucifixion, doesn't stay in the grave. He is raised, and because he is alive right now, he sends us the spirit of adoption, and we await with all of creation, groaning, crying out, Abba, Father, Help what has gone wrong in this world. That is deeply what it means to be a Christian. But there's a warning in this passage. Right? He tells us this beautiful truth that we receive the spirit of adoption. But Paul warns us that we can functionally push this away. And we can functionally in our identity fall back into what he calls slavery. Now slavery conjures up vivid imagery for us today as it should but it was probably even more vivid for those reading this and hearing these words in the first century. 35 to 40% of Rome was enslaved. There is a chance that a lot, if not almost all, of the hearers of this are in some, hearers of this word are in some kind of indentured servitude. But the identity of a slave in a household is different than a son, isn't it? 
What are you always questioning? The head of the household's motives toward you. You know who's not questioning that or who ought not be questioning that? The son. Right? The son knows his father loves him. If you're in the position of son, it's not in doubt. And it's a slavery specifically to fear. He says, don't fall back into a slavery of fear, but instead live within the spirit of adoption. So what's going on there? Well, I've been reading through a book called Adopted for Life by Russell Moore. If you want to be messed up in a good way for a little while, I'd encourage you to jump into that. He and his wife, Maria, adopted two sons from Russia. And he tells this story about when they finally, after months of travel and paperwork and all of this, they get to the day where they get to pick up their kids from Russia. And this story has haunted me all week, so I'm going to let you come in with it, uh, with me here. So it's a little long excerpt. I've got the last part of it on the screen so you can follow with, but just listen to what he says. When Maria and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our sons, we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They'd never seen the sun. They'd never felt the wind. They'd never heard the sound of a car door slamming or felt like they were being carried along a road at 100 miles per hour. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergey, now Timothy, that place is a pit. If only you knew what was waiting for you, a home with a mommy and a daddy who loves you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was filthy, but they had no other reference point. It was home. They are now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 40 yards away. I still remember, though, those little hands reaching for the orphanage. And I don't miss what he says here. And I see myself there. You see, there's, there's something deep within us there. Growing in Christ means leaving our old identity, right? Being adopted into the family means forsaking what came before. And our old idea of home, right? Our old place of comfort, wherever that is for us, although it's filthy, although it's simply an orphanage in the grand scheme of things, it is always scary to leave it. We, just like his two sons, reach back for it all the time. And if we only knew what awaited us, if we only knew where our father was taking us, but we wrestle with our identity, we turn back to what we know and what is deemed as comfortable rather than stepping in faith into this new identity, into this new family. And when we turn back, he says, fear will follow. Fear will follow. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to turn back to the filth. We don't have to turn back to what's been deemed comfortable for us. We get to turn to our Father. We get to turn to the one who is embracing us and bringing us into the truest family there ever is. And the gospel tells us, don't ever forget that Jesus has walked there too. He has walked there too, and he has come out the other side victorious. If we only knew what awaited us in our Father's embrace. So in these moments of fear, 
these moments where we feel ourselves being drawn back to the filthy pit of this life, may the Holy Spirit cause us to cry out, Abba, Father, help me, rescue me, because he really and truly is our Father. We have Jesus. The last thing that adoption touches on this passage is inheritance. Look at verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. This idea of inheritance is probably lost fully on us today. Right? The issue of inheritance is such a big deal for this context. For us, we tend to think of inheritance as a lump sum of money sitting in a bank that when a relative passes away, we might get sent a check and we might get a part of it. Right? It can often lead to disagreements amongst families. That's our idea of inheritance. But in this context, inheritance was tied up with their livelihood and the continuance of their family into the future. It was far more about a cultivation of a way of life than simply money in the bank, right? Take Peter and Andrew, two of the disciples, for example. Jesus calls them while they are fishing, right? And they get out of the boat and they follow Jesus. It's one sentence in our biblical text, but what we don't grasp in our context is that they are walking away from their inheritance. This is not a Saturday morning fishing hobby, okay? They're not just saying, well, you know, more time with Jesus now, I'll put away the fishing. No, no. This is their livelihood. This is their family. This is their inheritance. They are leaving their skills. They are leaving their guarantee of a future career to pass on to their children who will pass it on to their children's children. That's why in the Gospels, there's a moment where Peter wrestles with this. He realizes what is going on. He's feeling the cost of following Jesus. He's pulling the tug back to the filth. He's feeling that rub of, maybe I should turn back. You know what he says? He says to Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. That's an inheritance issue. We have left everything. Luke says that Peter says, we have left our homes to follow you. But you know how Jesus responds? It's beautiful. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Matthew adds this, Jesus says, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, guess what, Peter? You're not gonna be thinking about fishing. Guess what you're gonna be doing? You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So what does it mean that we are heirs of God? It means that we get an inheritance from him. And what does it mean that we are co-heirs with Christ? It means that we share the very same blessing that is given to Jesus Christ himself. But what will this be? I mean, God doesn't have a lump sum, sum of money sitting in a bank account, right? I mean, God owns um, everything, right? So what does that mean for us who are the heirs of God? You know what it means? We get everything, Right? We get to, according to Jesus, rule and reign alongside the King of kings and the Lord of lords on a renewed earth for all eternity. That's the inheritance that awaits us. It ain't fishing. But it's hard because we like fishing. We like 
drawing back to what we know, and Jesus is calling us into something greater. And don't miss in the context of all of this, you get a family. You get a family. He says, all of you who have left, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, those who do not share the same faith claim as you, you will receive many times more in the age to come what you thought you had here. And what's so, what's so striking and incredible about Christianity is that this inheritance, it's given to both men and women. So you've waited long enough. Let's go back to that conversation now, okay? The reason why I kept that title as sons is important, right? Because in this context, there's a reason Paul does that. The inheritance in the first century and really all times before it, it went to the son. And it went to the oldest son, particularly the firstborn. Women were included in this only through marriage, right? They would only receive an inheritance through her husband. That's why in the New Testament, widows are such a concern. They truly are vulnerable in a way that they might not be today, although certainly we're still called to care today. But Paul makes clear right here and also in Galatians 3 that both men and women, brothers and sisters, will receive this inheritance, right? Both men and women are brought into this title of children of God. In Galatians, Paul said there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, but all are the inheritors of God's stuff, God's kingdom, God himself, right? And that's why I don't think Paul says that we are sons and daughters of the Father. Because what could have easily happened is if he writes that, the men in the room go, okay, cool, well, the daughters have God as their father, but we know where the inheritance lies. You know, Paul presses back against that, and he says, you know what's radical about this? You know what's revolutionary about this? Daughters are also included in the inheritance given to the son. They are brought into that title. It does not demean your womanhood. It esteems it as a full participant, as an image bearer of God, in the most profound way that a culture would have seen. So these, this label of sons speaks to the flowing of this inheritance. All who are in Christ have the status of adopted sons who get the full inheritance, brothers and sisters, with God as our father. So here's the picture Paul is painting. Though we were orphans, though we were not the natural born children in the kingdom of God, we are truly brothers and sisters. We truly have God as our father. And we are truly heirs of God. And we didn't earn any of this. We didn't earn any of this. It is all a gift of the gospel. Is that hard to believe? It should be. It should be really hard to believe, but it's precisely right there that God draws us into awe and wonder and worship, isn't it? Like me? I get all of that? The one who was not in your kingdom, not in your family, that's mine now? Right, that ought to draw us to worship. And at this point of the sermon, I hope you can see this practical outworking of this is not some special interest group within the church. Right, the practical outworking of this and the issue of adoption is the very gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our story. Right? Adoption lies both at the center of the gospel and as a call to mission. Listen, brothers and sisters, it is not a matter of if God has called us to orphan care. It is a matter of how he has called us. Because if this is really our story, how could we possibly look at those around us 
who find themselves in this situation and not care? If this is really our story, how could we simply just shrug our shoulders and say, no way. By the way, historically, we know this is the first thing that the church began to do. One of the first things that we know historically. Right? Adoption happened in first century Rome, but it only happened for sons. And usually only to continue a family line. Maybe a couple is infertile and they need to keep that lineage and that line going. So they adopt a son and then they become the rightful heirs of that. Adoption for a daughter who might be fatherless or motherless was extremely rare. In fact, it was rare in general for Roman families to have more than one daughter. But this is not because less baby girls were being born. Right? They simply were not being treated as image bearers of God. They were not being welcomed into homes. To put it bluntly, infanticide was the normative practice of this day. And this is uncomfortable for us, as it should be, but it was just not uncommon in this world for babies that were unwanted to be discarded. And this was particularly devastating for baby girls. By the way, there is nothing new under the sun, right? We're here celebrating this, honoring, it's not a celebration, honoring this Sunday with a very similar storyline, aren't we? We maybe seem to have made it more convenient today, whatever that might mean, but there's nothing new here. So into the brokenness of that steps the church of Jesus Christ. Into the brokenness of the Roman Empire in that way steps the kingdom of God. And you know what happens? The church rescued and adopted children who have been discarded, brought them into their homes. They said, we will take these children. They will become our own because we have been made God's own. What drove them to do this was the very gospel itself. This is the mission of the church. We are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Jesus hears the cries of orphans. He hears our cry of Abba, Father. He hears the cries of Abba from those that the world or that we might be prone to ignore. And he does this because Jesus tells, him, tells us that he is with the least of these. He is with the vulnerable. He is with the weak. He is with those who are viewed as less than humans when they in fact bear the very image of the creator of the universe. And because Jesus is with the least of these, we are called to hear this cry when the rest of the world doesn't hear it. So I want us to consider two things as we close. First of all, there are some of you here who simply need to know or you need to be reminded that there is a father who is welcoming you into his family through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a father who is inviting you to be a full participant in the family of God. The invitation is simply to turn to him in faith to turn away from what feels comfortable in this world, to turn away from the filth that will actually lead to death, and to run to Jesus, who he says, my brothers, my sisters, is your father and my father. He says, run to that. We turn to Jesus, our brother, the one who has walked this path before us. And secondly, maybe some of you today or being called to consider adoption or foster care more seriously than you have before. This does not mean that every single one of us will have a child in our home. It does mean that for some of you. 
It does mean for all of us that every single one of us are called to this ministry in some capacity. Whether it be coming around the fatherless and the motherless and simply welcoming them into the family. Whether it means praying, like really praying. Whether it means babysitting. Whether it means bringing meals. It means that we financially invest our money as mission ammunition to see this ended. It means that we want to see those who do not have father and mother come to know God as their father. Brothers and sisters, the picture we get in the scriptures of the kingdom of God is a bunch of adopted children. That's the kingdom. That's you and me. Our own adoption, our own caring for the fatherless and the motherless, it declares and displays the gospel to the world. It is like a city set on a hill that lights the way, pointing to Jesus and to his kingdom and to his rule and his reign. So I want to close with this thought from Russell Moore. We'll be done. He says, more important than your name is hearing it called out by the one you come to know, or rather who has come to know you. When you see him for the first time face to face, when your legal adoption is fully realized, the spirit within you will cry out, Abba, Father. And you will hear another voice louder than all the others cry out the same thing. You'll turn to see him the Messiah of Israel, the emperor of the universe, Jesus of Nazareth, and you'll call him brother. Let's pray.